Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com And we are recording. And we are recording, and it's another hot and dry day here on the east end of Long Island. I'm sitting on my porch where I'm, I don't know why I do this. I have, you know, we have perfectly fine air conditioning inside, but I like to like punish myself. I think it, I think it goes back to my Ohio roots when, you know, we weren't allowed to like touch the AC even when we had it, but we mostly we, didn't have it. We, we, we didn't have air conditioning when I was growing up. And I, I look back now and I'm like, how, how did we live like that? How was no global warming, Bill? Nobody did in my neighborhood. Nobody had well, you only have like one 90 degree day all summer now. Like every one of them is a 90 degree day. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. I remember I had a window air conditioner in my bedroom growing up and I would shut the door and turn it on full blast. And it would be about 50 degrees in that room when I'd go to bed. There would be icicles hanging from the, from the uh, air conditioner. That's my daughter's room, my 13-year-old. We have window units upstairs and her room, you walk in there, it's like 30 degrees. It's it hang so meat. cold. Yeah, yeah that, I, I like it like that when I'm sleeping. I still do, but now now we don't we don't keep it yeah. quite that cold. I remember so. I got in trouble once. My dad put an air condition window air conditioner in my room and I went to sleep. It was like the first night I was so excited. I was 11 and um, I woke up. Uh, I actually, I woke up in the morning. He was so mad at me because I didn't get up and turn it off at like 3 a.m. I'm like, I was supposed to know that. Like nobody ever told me that I needed to do that. You know, like who's going to get up at 3 a.m. and turn off the AC? Certainly not me. (laughs) So it was a very scarring um, episode. So, so we're back. Enough about AC. (laughs) Other hot topics. Summer's full of hot topics. So um, with us again at the controls is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is Catherine G. Manu, a.k.a. Georgie. Hey. Hey, Annette. It's Georgie. I am the publisher of the Express News Group. And also with us is Joseph Shaw, who goes by Joe. Don't call him Joseph unless he's in trouble. Well, I, don't, I don't mind Joseph. It's Joey oh. that I yeah. really don't care for. Yeah, I, I, Vince Canusio, the late Vince Canusio was the only one. He and my mom were the only two people I liked. I, I let them call me Joey. I am Joe Shaw. Uh, I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hankel, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is Sandra Dunn. And Sandra, you are the associate director of OLA. And my Spanish is terrible, so I'm going to try this. But if it stinks, I'll cut it out. Um, Organización Latino Americana. Did I do that right? Almost. That's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> I think your listeners will understand. Organización Latinoamericana. Exactly. Uh, yeah. See, that's part of the problem is like, I don't speak Spanish, so I never know what to say. When it's all right. Counter people. Just you know, know that all A's are pronounced A. Ah. There's no variation ah. on that theme. All A's are pronounced A. Ah. Yeah, I had a very <laughs> substandard education in high school. I didn't have to, I didn't really take language and I didn't even have to take it in college. And it shows, you know. I'm just working on mastering English. That's all. Um, so thank <laughs> you, Sandra, for joining us. And um, today we're, we're going to talk about the 20th anniversary of OLA. It's an organization that is um, very involved in helping the Hispanic community 
on the east end of Long Island. And um, we thought it would be interesting to, to reflect back on the 20 years. Now, I'm not sure, um, Sandra, how long you've been with the organization, um, but the whole idea that of how things have changed and how things maybe have not changed for that for the Hispanic population on the east end. Um, so do you want to jump in a little bit and give sure. us a little bit of history and also your history with the group? Yeah, sure. And that's a huge question. So <laughs> I'm not, yeah, not I, I have a habit of doing that. <laughs> how things have changed on the east end because it has been 20 years and we know there have been all kinds of changes, right? So um, I am Sandra Dunn and yeah, don't call me Sandy, but just like you, Joe, I had um, the church that I grew up playing the piano for that priest did not know how to not say Sandy. So the priest and the entire congregation called me Sandy, but they're the only people who were ever allowed. So I totally understand. <laughs> See, Vince was doing it to get under my skin and I decided to adopt it in sort of a judo fashion and turn it back around into being something yeah, that yeah, I enjoyed. Exactly. So. Um, so anyway, yes. Yeah, so I have been with Ola two different times. So this is my second incarnation with Ola and I began with Ola again, the second time in September of 2018. So Minerva um, uh, became executive director, the first full-time uh, paid executive director for the organization in February, 2016, and then started you know, hiring folks. So uh, Minerva is Minerva Perez and Minerva is Ola's executive director. Yes, and um, I was hired, rehired uh, to be with Ola in, in 2018, September, 2018, but before that, my history with the organization goes back pretty far because uh, we were founded in, in 2002 and I think it was something like October 2002. And then soon after that, like I heard about the organization. I also read the press that you were giving the organization. I had been in Ghana for a year. So 2001, 2002, I was living out of the country. And when I came back, friends said, you know, there's this organization that has started to, to work for Latino rights. And and so I thought, okay, I've got to get involved with this. And so I, I think I attended my first OLA meeting in September, or sorry, January, 2003. At that point, there were public meetings. So public meetings on different topics. And these were monthly meetings that, that we had for, for several years for the entire time that I was with the organization, which was 2003, that first meeting until um, 2007. And and so um, I attended all of those meetings at very early on. It may have even been that first meeting. I, I volunteered to be on the press and public relations committee. So I, um, I was doing the, um, heading up the committee that was, was doing what was then our uh, newsletter. I eventually became a board member. And then um, during this time, Isabel Sepulveda de Scanlon was the president of OLA. Um, she was one of three, um, there, there, were, there was a large founding group, but she was one of three um, officers of, of all our presidents, co-presidents. Um, one was Chini Alarco and the other was Jackie Candermere in addition to Isabel. Um, Isabel, however, stayed with the organization and is still on our board um, as founding president and, and uh, vice president. So um, she stepped down for just a, a brief moment to uh, and, and I stepped in as acting president just so she could have have a break. She she was doing a whole lot. And at that point, there was no paid staff. Ola had no paid staff. So it was volunteer board members organized in committees that were focused on press and public relations, that were focused on government issues, that were focused on education and the arts and, and other things. So um, that's how the work was getting done. Sandra, I wanted to ask you that for any organization to, to hit 20 years, um, I feel like the first year or two 
is essential in those organizations. What was the energy like back then? I mean, I, I feel like an organization's never going to survive if it can't sort of get off the ground in that first year or two. And what I recall from the outside looking in at Ola from the beginning was there was just an incredible amount of energy and, and so many different people who, who were willing to do what they needed to do to get that organization going. That's absolutely the case, yes. And so, you know, it was founded um, as um, a separate organization when the, um, and I might get the exact name wrong, but the East Hampton Hispanic Advisory Committee um, that was set up by, during um, the time that Jay Schneiderman was uh, East Hampton Town Supervisor, so this was around the year 2000, he and Diana Weir, um, you know, formed this, this arm of town government called the East Hampton um, Hispanic Advisory Committee. And that's when Isabel Cheney, et cetera, all of these folks and, and many others, you know, were part of that. And then they realized that to really do what they wanted to do, and this is where the energy comes in, because they had a lot of energy and a lot of ideas and a lot of awareness of what the needs of the community were. And there were just some things that could not be done if you were if you were an arm of, of town government. So they they all resigned at the same time and formed Ola. And for about one year, uh, they met just on their own. Um, you know, meetings were in Spanish. They were meeting on the own on their own, trying to you know sort out what this organization would be, what uh, its structure would be, what its mission would be. And then it was then in October, November, something like that of 2002 that they opened up the meetings to the entire public. And the energy was tremendous. Um, the, the, I remember those early meetings and for a good time afterwards that, that the room, we would have our meetings in the, the community room of what was then Bridgehampton National Bank in Bridgehampton and is now Dine Community Bank, um, they've merged. But that, you know, I felt like I lived in that room sometimes because so many meetings would happen there. And, and that room was packed uh, a lot of the time and the meetings were done in Spanish and in English. So it was, you know, it was a, a, a wonderful thing. And people, it, it was Latino community members and Latino leaders who were energized, but also non-Latino um, community members and, and stakeholders, because they also wanted to see what this organization would do, but they also wanted to see that, that um, this growing um, um, sector of the community or population of Latinos would get the attention they deserved, that their rights would be respected. And, um, and that's one you know, wonderful thing, despite of, you know, all of the, the anti-immigrant sentiment, especially at that time in, in the early and mid 2000s, it was strong all over Long Island. You know, Steve Levy was our county executive um, and very vocally anti-immigrant. He wouldn't say it that way, but, but he was so much so that he formed a national organization um, called mayors and, and, and county executives um, for immigration reform or something like that. But it was really about, you know, um, making sure those people, uh, in their words, those people, you know, didn't, didn't um, uh, come here without, without documents, et cetera. Uh, so a lot of myths floating around. So there was a lot of energy to try to, um, on the part of community members to combat that, you know, to say, no, this is not who we are. And this is not who we are in the East End. And um, even though anti-immigrant sentiment is here also, uh, it gets played out in the letters to the editor in your paper a lot, but, but that it was tremendous. But it didn't really catch on here like it did in some other communities in Suffolk County, right? I mean, I mean it, there were communities to the West 
in Suffolk County that were that really had issues and and there was a lot of sort of open hatred mm-hmm. and I, I recall violence that, a lot of a lot of violence a lot of and, violence and too yeah and, Pat, Patchog and right. points west and I recall during that time thinking that the South Fork really was kind of um, an oasis that that we you you're absolutely right there were sentiments and there were people here um, who had those sentiments but it didn't have nearly the impact in our community. I, and I wondered, um, you know, is it too much to suggest that Ola may have been one reason for that, 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 that there was, there was an effort to sort of try and address these, these inequities and, and to, to do something about it, it was in the public eye. It's true. And, um, you know, you may recall that, that the, um, effort to the Coalition for a Wake Lake Center um, that formed in 2005 or 2006 was an effort to organize um, uh, to organize a hiring site, a, a formal hiring site for day laborers at the 7-Eleven. That was the most visible issue. But I, w- I would say that the South Fork um, was, was not immune. And I, I certainly at that time did not consider it an, an oasis. Um, I think that OLA was instrumental along with other organizations that, that were part of that coalition, as well as OLA on its own, um, doing what it could uh, without any paid staff at that point. Um, I eventually became paid staff. I was I was a part-time paid executive director, but only for six months. This was 2006, 2007. Um, and then I resigned to run for, for Southampton Town Council. But during that period and, and leading up to it, um, it was, you know, I think that, that uh, what we were seeing was, yes, there was, there was um, a good bit of discrimination. It, it was in letters to the editor, to your paper as well. And, um, and and anti-immigrant sentiment and the... I, I, I feel like it was a lot more blatant back then and a lot more vocal. And, and I think maybe it's, um, it's become a little more whispered now, but it, it was certainly, I, I think in some, some segments back then and, and having seen it and you talked about the hiring site and there were other issues where, where it just, it really, it seemed almost in, in in some sectors of the community that it was acceptable to be anti-immigration and, and anti-Spanish speaking population. And and I don't, you know, and, and I, I wonder not, you know, wh- whether that's whether that's changed or or whether it's just a lot a lot less vocal. I'm curious as to know to, to know what you think about that. Right, and, and thanks, Bill, for that. And it's something that that I do think about. Um, I think that that uh, I like to think, anyway, Joe, to what you were saying earlier, that 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 you know, here in in our community in Southampton, East Hampton Town, and and perhaps on the North Fork as well, because Ola is increasingly doing work on the North Fork. That that. Um, Things have changed, and we see that you know even in local politics, things things have changed a good bit. And I mean, Ola is a completely nonpartisan organization, uh, um, and it's interesting that immigration uh, you you can't always count on um, Democrats to do the right thing when it comes to immigration. That that is a wedge issue, even even within the Democratic Party locally and nationally, as we know. But um, Referring to what you were saying, Bill, about further west on the island, so there was Farmingville, um, and the and the film that was made about Farmingville by by a local filmmaker, two local filmmakers, um, Catherine Tamarina and 
and, and Carlos Sandoval. Yes. Yeah, Car- Carlos was involved with that. Yeah, he's our columnist now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so that was that was really huge and that got a lot of attention. Um, and then, of course, um, sadly, the the killing of Marcelo Lucero and Joselo Lucero was my colleague for many years at the Hagedorn Foundation, which is where I went um, after I, I left Ola, you know, in the in the mid 2000s. And so um, it's partly my time working there at the Hagedorn Foundation that I, I got the bird's eye view of what was going on in relation to immigration on Long Island, not just just the local view here on the East End. And um, we were very involved at the foundation. Um, I was there from 2008 to 2017 as the immigration program officer making grants to organizations like OLA and like many other um, immigrant rights organizations on Long Island. And so so just to bring it back home to the East End, the Southern Poverty Law Center, after the murder of Marcelo Lucero by a a group of of seven um, teenagers, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, put together a report that that when I was at the Hagedorn Foundation, I helped them with, I put them in touch with the right people on Long Island. And this report detailed many incidents of violence um, in different places of Long Island. I was having them speak to people in churches, you know, just grassroots community people. And it included incidents of violence here on the East End. And I know that Mm. at least one or two were reported in in the Southampton Press, what was then the Southampton Press. Um, So um, one was, just right there at the 7-Eleven, a car deliberately hit um, a man who was there at the 7-Eleven. And it turned out that this, and this, and the, and the person driving the cars, you know, drove away and said something like, you know, go back home, you don't belong here, or something like that. It turns out the man was, um, I believe, half Mexican and half Native American from, from the U.S. So very much a U.S. citizen. And, um, and then a really horrifying incident that, that happened in East Hampton where um, a couple of uh, men tied up uh, a couple of teenagers in a backyard shed and terrorized them. I remember with, that, that was an right. ugly so incident. So yeah. this is not, not an oasis, not an oasis. And, um, and so, you know, so I, I think, the anti-immigrant sentiment was very vocal. It was somehow permissible mm. to mm-hmm. um, do these things. I mean, not, of course, but but people felt that they could. Yep. And we saw a resurgence of that na- nationwide when, when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, that people felt at liberty to just say what they wanted to, do what they wanted to, and, and incidences of, of violence increased. Um, although I, I'm not recalling any particular incidents here on the East End, but, but may have happened. We use the term anti-immigrant, um, and and it always felt to me, you know, and maybe this is obvious, but it felt to me that that was just a, a mask for pure racism. That 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 was how, you know, people who you know who 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 felt that way, and and you know, with with that ugly racism, they could put that that veneer on that shine on it. Well, we're just protecting jobs. We're just you know this or that, and it had nothing to do with with the economy it, it just it just had to do with 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 hate I mean am I wrong um, I think so <laughs> I think you're right <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard anybody complain about the Irish uh 
folks who come in in the yes. summer or the Eastern European folks. But you weren't in the Lower East Side in the early 1900s when they were doing exactly that. And the Germans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you look at the, if you look at Michelle Trowering's story about Ola, I kind of wrote down some numbers. And in 1990, the East End population, um, or East Hampton population, anyways, was 94% white and only um, 5% Hispanic and 4% Black. By 2000, right before Ola was formed, you were up to a 14.8% Hispanic. So I feel like you know those early days when people start feeling, quote unquote, overwhelmed by the new population, that's probably when the racism is absolutely worse. Right. Um, you know, and now um, on the East End, I guess, or Latinos make up, according to Michelle's story, 23% of the population. So it's almost like I feel like there's like a, it's like the rising water and that's where people freak out. You know, and once it kind of settles in and there's a couple generations, then it, it sort of becomes more more, you know, accepted and normalized. But I also wonder, you know, just thinking about this, if, if you know, we've definitely have had issues of racism um, on the East End. But I wonder if it's been somewhat less because so many people that live out here actually employ the Hispanic population, whereas further west, you might find that these people are living with neighbors who are also working in jobs that are similar, and they see them as more as a competition and threat than maybe you do out here, where fewer people are in that role and are more in the role of hiring um, these laborers. I don't know. Is that? I think that, um, first of all, just about about racism and, and xenophobia, um, I think certainly that's there for a lot of folks, but but to to piggyback up what you're saying, Annette, I think that um, often that is there when when people don't, and this studies have shown this, right, when people don't work closely with or don't know or don't befriend um, people who who they perceive as different from, from themselves, then they make all kinds of judgments and then the behavior um, and attitudes come out that that we might label racist. I, I try to stay away from that word because I, I think it's just much more complex um, but but yes, racism mm. is out there and and people experience it. I would also say that, you know, people are not immune to experiencing racism on the job either. So yeah. just because people are hiring uh, uh, Latinos or hiring, hiring, you know, Latinos um, or African-Americans or other people of color. Um, and in the case of Latinos, whether they are immigrants or non-immigrants, whether they were born here or not, or whether they are documented immigrants or, or undocumented immigrants, I think people, you know, have a set of, of um, not everybody, well, everybody to some extent, I would say, but um, the set of unconscious biases that, that we all have to work to, to undo, right? In, in, this, in this country of ours that is the United States of America that has a really fraught history. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think, um, I'm not always comfortable comparing East End to, to the rest of Long Island, because I, I think it's, it's um, we we've got the same the same issues here that that we have further west on the island and you know if you look at how uh, election results were um, you know politically we aren't that much that different either. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. 
Carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. How, what are the challenges? How have they changed over the years? What's the new, what are the biggest challenges the organization is, is um, attacking? And is that different than mm-hmm. 20 years ago? Um, so I don't know that the challenges themselves have, have changed, but Ola's bandwidth has changed. Mm-hmm. You know, our capacity has changed. And so what mm-hmm. we're able to tackle and focus on, thanks to Minerva's leadership, um, you know, starting in, in February 2016, where she started out as sole staff, you know, one person, and then slowly, slowly, and then quickly, quickly, you know, um, um, built us to where we are core staff of eight or nine now. Plus, we have temporary um, um, funding that is keeps getting renewed by um, New York State Office of, of Mental Health, but it's FEMA funding, and it was funding to fund Project Hope, which is a, a crisis counseling program. So during the pandemic, FEMA declared this a crisis and decided that people could use crisis counseling in the same way that that um, that they do when there's a hurricane or, or earthquake or something like that. So we have um, started out with two teams of crisis counselors. Now we have one. So we have 10, something like 10, 10 people on our Project HOPE team. So so this allows us to do so much more. And um, and because uh, Minerva has the will and the passion to keep doing more and more. She makes sure, and I help her make sure by writing grant proposals and doing fundraising that we get we get the funding to, to hire the staff that we need to hire to do what we have. So in terms of the challenges, not so much that, that they've changed, but, but you know, we're just able to tackle more. So, so something that we, um, we work on pretty diligently is working with um, local police departments. So the, the five town police departments, but also as much as possible. And again, it's, it's a bandwidth issue, but as much as possible village police departments, but, but our main contact being with, with the five town police departments on, on the East end. And um, we have offered trainings. Minerva has provided trainings to police department on just how to better understand and communicate with um, Latino members of our community, whether it's a traffic stop or a domestic violence call or whatever it might be. And this includes, but is not limited to language line training. So mm-hmm. we have provided, um, we found the funding for the Southampton Police Department to get, um, I believe it was 15 patrol cars equipped with a cell phone dedicated only to language line use. And this is for people who might not know, this is where a police officer or someone in an office, whoever has the language line can call up the language line operators and a, a, an interpreter will be provided there on the spot to do to do the interpreting in a situation where interpretation is needed. And this is for, for many, many, many languages, not just Spanish. Um, so we want to see police officers using that. The training involves you know, a role pay, play on correct usage of that, plus lots of information about how OLA can be a resource, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so trainings to different police departments on the East End, those are ongoing and we are, we are always offering them. We also um, encounter situations where victims, and I'm thinking specifically of victims of, of sexual assault and sometimes sadly child victims of sexual assault uh, kind of get lost in the system. So they, they may report to the police, um, but then their case kind of, it, it moves on this truck that they don't understand. And so Ola is there to to work with them to make sure that that any um, gaps in communication between police 
and, and the victim or the victim's family or the DA's office and the victim and the victim's family. So th to try to close those gaps and make sure that people understand that, you know, you have the right to call up and ask about your case. You have the right to, to ask for a police report. You have, you know, all of these things. And, and um, so we, we are working on that kind of constantly on a, on a case by case basis. So we, we provide a direct service to the victim by being an advocate, by informing them of rights, et cetera, et cetera. But we also try to work um, for systemic change to make sure that certain gaps are, are closed in, in, in there. So overall, OLA has increased its direct services. Um, you know, a new challenge being, of course, the pandemic and tremendous um, sudden unemployment that we saw that affected everyone in the country, right, in relation to, to the pandemic. But here on the East End, um, affected in particular uh, Latino members of our community who were working in industries that were from one day to the next shut down. So suddenly, you know, people couldn't go into the houses and, and take care of the houses that they were taking care of for, for a decade or more. And so what we did to address this challenge was something we have never done in the past, um, uh, but sudden, you know, pivot so that 85, 90% of our staff time was dedicated to making sure that we have systems in place, both within OLA and, um, and at the county and town levels to make sure that people who were homebound were getting food. People mm. who were, um, you know, who mm. couldn't get out and, 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 and shop and, um, because they had cancer and didn't want to be exposed to the pandemic when it first started, et cetera, things like that. But we also, for people who lost their jobs, we were able to um, kind of fund, help the, the, the people most in need feed their families by giving them a supermarket gift card uh, every, every couple of weeks in most cases, that's what we were doing. We were doing that for a very long time, you know, over a year, thanks to, we started doing it with, with no funding, um, but then foundations and, and other organizations were, were um, we were able to apply for funding and get, get that work funded. So that was, that's been a huge challenge. Um, but overall, we try to provide direct services, legal direct services when we can, uh, referrals, um, and then also um, work for systemic change um, in, in, in different ways with education, police, and government. And finally, I'll just say that that's something we're very focused on, a huge challenge now, not just related to the pandemic, but exacerbated by the pandemic, is um, mental health. Uh, we want to make sure that there is not only access to healthcare, like vaccinations, operating vaccination pods, which we've done, making sure the vaccination pods and, and, and uh, are, are being done bilingually, et cetera. We've done many, many across the East End in partnership with nonprofits, in partnership with our local hospitals, but also access to mental health care. This is a huge issue and we are focusing on it in a big way in relation to our youth um, because the pandemic whoa, did it, did it really affect this generation, you know, and of, of high school kids and, and college kids. And so we are doing um, our first ever youth summit uh, in about a week, uh, a couple of weeks on, on August 15th. And, um, and that the purpose of that youth summit will be to allow the, the teenagers and, and early 20-somethings, college-age kids who, who are there to talk about what they would like to see in relation to change um, and systemic change um, um, on the East End in relation to how mental health care services are provided, um, access, the need for more bilingual 
um, mental health care providers, um, et cetera. So this is really gonna be run by them and, and their voice will be then whatever they write down um, and, and come up with in, in terms of bullet points and ideas, we will make sure that, that partners and stakeholders that we work with um, have, have that information. This is Catherine Manu, and I'm the editor of the Sag Harbor Express and co-publisher with my husband, Gavin, of the Express News Group. Local community news matters more than ever, with misinformation spreading constantly across the internet. We live in the communities we cover. We are your neighbors, your friends, your family. We tell the good stories and, unfortunately, the bad. We focus on your triumphs and losses. But we can't do this without our subscribers. To subscribe, please visit 27east.com slash subscribe. And thank you for your support. Before we uh, started recording, we were reminiscing a little bit that that we actually go back to the early aughts, which is around the time OLA was formed. Um, we were, as a news organization, we started a newspaper, a Spanish language version of the press called Nuestra Prensa, and you were helpful in getting that off the ground back then. Um, and we were discussing the fact that I think we were just a little ahead of the curve. Um, uh, we, we actually, I thought it was a great project. I thought we did a lot of really good work. And part of the goal was to build a bridge between the Spanish speaking community and the English speaking community that that's really divided only by the language. And I think we were able to, to get some things done in that regard. But one of the things that, that I learned in that process that I think is fascinating, and I kind of want to explore it with you is we talk about the Latino community on the South Fork and on the East End. It, it's not monolithic in any way, shape or form. It, it, is, it is just dozens and dozens and dozens of smaller communities, right? I mean, we, it's, it's difficult to talk about the Latino community because it is so diverse. And I know that one of the things I'm curious about is, I mean, a lot of Latino immigrants end up staying for a very long time and some stay permanently, but not a lot. There are a lot of people who don't plan to do that, right? They come for a few years and, and their plan all along is to go back home at some point. It's a, it's a, it's a community that's diverse. It's hard to talk about as a community because of that diversity, right? I mean, we can't really sum it up in, in simple terms. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we at Ola um, make it a point not to use the phrase Latino community, um, partly for the reason that you mentioned uh, that it is many communities, but also because it's not a separate community from, from ours. They are part of our community. So what we, we say and would encourage others to say is Latino members of our community, um, you, you know, or members of our community who happen to be Latino. Um, there's, there's not a separate Latino community. Uh, they, you know, Latinos are here, um, immigrants come here. And as a former board member of OLA way back when in the mid 2000s said, um, he said no immigrant community or no immigrant group um, that has come to the U.S. has ever packed up their bags and gone away, you know, and, and I think Annette was alluding to, you know, the Irish and in, in, in the, mm -hmm. um, around the turn of the century and also Germans before that, um, where their skin was white, but they, they experienced a, a lot, a lot, a lot of discrimination and, and xenophobia. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I think many, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a phrase that people use to say, well, 
you know, immigrants come here for a better life, um, you know, period. Uh, it's, it's so much more complex than that. Sometimes immigrants come here by choice. Many times, especially people from, from certain countries in, in Latin America come here because they have no choice, because they are, and, and often people have, have said, scholars have said, you know, that a lot of uh, Latin American immigrants, depending on where they're coming from and, and, and the reasons, really should be called economic refugees um, because they are escaping poverty or escaping, I mean, I mean, crushing poverty where they, you know, and, and to a large extent, the U.S. is complicit in this. It's, it's U.S. policies, trade policies, military policies, drug policies that, that often make um, um, uh, the conditions, conditions that, in, in Latin America, yeah. exactly. So, so if we look at the Northern Triangle countries, um, the um, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, uh, some of the three most violent countries in the world, uh, sometimes um, certain places in, in El Salvador or Honduras being considered the most violent places in the world, because um, this is a place where a 10-year-old can come out of, you know, walk out of the school and, and be accosted by what we call gang members, but it's really larger than that. It's a whole organized network and, and say, you know, we're going to kill you if you don't join the gang. And I have heard firsthand testimony from a Honduran grandmother who said that her two children were killed, her, sorry, her two grandchildren were killed because they would not join the gangs. So this is, this is something that it, this kind of, of extreme violence combined with poverty um, is what, what makes people feel they have to leave and in this case for their lives. Um, and and that, that is not an exaggeration. So I think people, yeah, certainly come here for all different kinds of reasons. Uh, I would say almost everybody that I've met um, uh, who, who I know who are immigrants from Latin America, regardless of, of their circumstances there or here, now that they're here, um, have in mind to stay. Uh, you know, coming here is not easy. It's not something people take lightly unless they already have some money, et cetera. But those are, those are not the immigrants that we're dealing with with Ola, right? We are dealing with people who, who really, um, really have to struggle and then come here and have to struggle and keep struggling and keep struggling um, economically. And we know what the economics are on the East End, how difficult it is to live here for middle-class people who were born here, right? So imagine, imagine what it is for people who come. So I think once people are here, they, you know, they're looking to stay. Um, that, you know, maybe they want to go and retire back in Colombia or Ecuador or, or wherever, but um, I don't, I don't see that as, as the majority of folks. Um, can I ask you, Sandra, have you seen a large influx of, of, of new members of the community coming in um, with all that's going on at the southern border? They're talking about, you know, so many people coming in now. Are we getting um, some influx of some, some new um, Hispanic community members because of what's happening down there? Um, I personally don't know. I don't know. I just know we we get, you know, every day many calls, many requests for help. Um, and and many, um, a lot of times our, our clients contact us on Facebook and through messaging and, and things like that. And I'm not the person on staff dealing first, firsthand with that. Um, and I don't know that our staff knows how recently arrived people are. I know that we have had I'm thinking of one case in particular, um, and, and there may be more, where there was somebody uh, a little further west, but she found Ola, 
and and she was very recently arrived, as I recall, with with a baby, um, and 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 needed needed assistance. So, um, yeah, but I don't, uh, you know, often when what what is going on at the border, um, people. So, for example, a few years ago when there were many so-called unaccompanied minors coming over. Um, and this was, you know, um, fleeing the violence uh, in, the, in the Central American countries and the Northern Triangle countries, uh, the three that I named earlier. So Hempstead um, received a lot of those, of those students. This I'm talking 2014, 2015, 2016, in those years. And the reason was that they didn't just randomly go to Hempstead. Is that those when when kids come over like that, they have to go through a process, um, a legal process and a family court process to be placed with a family member in the U.S. So they go where there's a family member. It's not that that people are suddenly being thrown onto Long Island or wherever. Um, but Hempstead happened to have happens to have a large Salvadoran population. So so people were going there. Here on the East End, there were some school districts. Um, that that did receive some students. I know here in Hampton Bays, my school district um, received some of, of those kids in those years. Um, may still be receiving some, and and Riverhead. So so it doesn't, you know. So in, it, it it I guess what I'm saying is the East End of Long Island, um, because there isn't a lot of industry, etc. Here, we know we have the industries that we know of, the the big ones, construction, restaurants, um, hospitality, etc. But but it's not necessarily the first destination point for somebody who's trying to come in and, and find work. Um, and, you know, people do go where they have family members or friends or something typically, but but not always. It seemed to me that in the beginning, the early days, there was a lot of fear from the Hispanic residents to speak out and to ask for, you know, I think that there was a certain um, a certain fear of 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 having encounters with the police or even maybe admitting to people at their school if they needed help for fear that they might be reported or someone show up their door. Would you say that was an earlier fear? And do you think that that's been sort of allayed with um, the education for the police and the other resources that Ola has set up? I think that, I think that, you know, this is constantly uh, part of what we're striving to do is, is to make for better communication um, as much as we can, you know, between uh, school administrators and and um, and parents uh, and and family members and and the police and the government and, and everything else. Um, but but you know what I to go directly to your question. I think that that the fear is still there. We 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 still see it. Um, but I think that people who have been here longer or people who have felt um, bolstered by by work that we've done with them, where we've educated them about their rights, for example, tenants' rights. We're, we're working on that a lot now. There's so many evictions happening right now, illegal evictions. Um, people who have been in their homes for 10, 13 years, and, and suddenly East End landlords say, nope, I want to sell my house, or I want to charge double the rent, I want you out of here, and, and trying to evict them illegally in some cases. So we have a pro bono attorney um, in East Hampton, who is not on our staff, but he he wants to take on these cases. Um, so when people are educated about their rights, as they are in, in this particular example of, of, you know, when they come to us afraid, they're being evicted, they don't know what to do. And then they realize, oh, okay, I've got this organization backing me. I have this, this pro bono attorney that I can work with if I choose. And, and he will accompany me in court. Um, and 
And then, then, you know, then there's an empowerment moment, right? Where it's like, okay, we, we can get something done. We have the power to speak out and to have our rights respected. Um, So I think this is, um, you know, I think, I think that's, that's a really wonderful moment to see people experience, but social justice work and, and positive social change doesn't happen overnight. And it, you know, it doesn't even happen in 20 years, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's ongoing, it's uphill, and it's why organizations like ours and, and there are other organizations doing fine work um, also need to exist. It, but at 20 years, one of the nice things is when you hit an anniversary like this, you can take a moment and step back. And you guys, as, a, as an organization, are always so busy. Um, I would think it's giving you, giving you an opportunity to just sort of step back. And do you, do you look back on the 20 years and go, wow, we have actually, we have a lot to do. We have, <laughs> there's always more to do, but we've accomplished a great deal as well. I think it's really important to take a moment and, and say that and, and give everybody, um, you know, a pat on the back for what, what's been accomplished in the first 20 years. It's pretty remarkable. Well, thanks, Joe. We really appreciate that. And I will say that Minerva is the first person to always be patting staff on the back for everything that they do because because the days are packed and and they are hard for especially for staff members who are dealing directly with um, clients who are in crisis. You know, it's you you absorb that. I mean, this you're you're dealing with people's lives and affecting people's lives. So so um, mm-hmm. you know we it's it's yeah um, it's taking the time to step back, however, <laughs> and say, oh, briefly, um, that's briefly. a little bit hard. We just did this big fundraiser <laughs> or whatever. However, if we, if we look at the big picture, and um, I think the article that Michelle Turing did, did, did a very good, good job of that, of, of showing the history, but then also where we've come and, and what we're focusing on now. I think that Ola's growth has been, has been really, really tremendous. And, you know, going from an all-volunteer organization um, and then over the years, you know, suddenly with an ex- executive director who's a powerhouse like like Minerva Perez is, then you can get a whole lot done. And and so a lot of the the I mean the growth has happened um, you know uh, in an intense way in the last six years uh, since February 2016. But it's it's a testament to what. If you have the will and you have the drive and you know what needs doing, and then you know how to make those things happen, then then they happen, and and that's that's where we are right now, I think. So Ola, you know, and when I was with Ola the first time around in the mid two thousands, um, we were focused on a number of things, but I was sole staff for six months only, and and but the board members we had some some very wonderful active board members, and um, so you know we were. We were making things happen, certainly um, as part of this coalition, trying to get a formal hiring site for day laborers um, on other fronts as well. And we haven't spoken about the arts because we've been focusing so much on, on, on the social justice work and, and, and the advocacy, but, but Ola has always had a focus on celebrating um, Latin American and, and Latino arts. And, and sometimes you know, through um, celebrating work from Spain as well. So, um, and this is for two main reasons. One is that we want to make sure that everyone feels that they have access and that they belong in our local amazing arts institutions. 
our museums, our theaters, et cetera. Um, we we want to make sure people feel welcome and, and Ola partners with these institutions all the time on our film festival, on art shows, um, uh, and I'm blanking on what else. Oh, our Pachanga, so music concerts that we do um, to make sure that people feel they have access. And the second main reason is that it's a space where people, art spaces are spaces, if, if it's done right, um, and where people who are immigrants and non-immigrants can be in the same space, you know, here in the Hamptons. Um, and, and where people who are documented, undocumented, um, Latino, non-Latino can, can be in the same space. So um, this, this is important to us to, to create those bridges, help to try to, to build those bridges so that people are interacting with each other in spaces that are not just where they work. What's the future hold for Ola? You, you guys have grown so much, so tremendously over the past 20 years. What are the next 10 years, 20 years hold? And I want to specifically, you know, in, in Michelle's article, she mentioned, I, I think it was the, you know, the youth mental health issues where you guys are reaching out to both Spanish language members of the community and non-Spanish language members of the community. And I'm wondering if there's ever a point where Ola advocates, and I'm sure you advocate for anybody that needs it, but where Ola advocates for not just Latino members of the community, but in certain areas, all members of the community as the population grows. And, and as you were just describing, where people are kind of melting together, what does that future look like? So that's a really great question. And I think that, um, that the way we look at it is that everything that we do, whether it's for an individual client who happens to be Latino or whether we're working on some systemic change issue with, with the police or whatever it might be, that everything we do, although we are a Latino focused organization, that it benefits the entire East End community. Sure. Um, because, because if, if <laughs> what is that? My, my mother is from Spain, so I didn't grow up with English idioms in, in my household English. Um, things, but if one, one, oh, the tide that raises the boat, what does that help? Right. Me? A rising tide raises all boats. That's right. It. So, so, you know, so if we help this person, it, it helps everybody. Change is change and changes change for everybody. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of our, our youth mental health work um, and the future, so our youth mental health work is absolutely focused on all youth. It is not just focused on, on um, Latino youth. And we're very proud of that. So um, we've increasingly in our youth dinners, um, the, our most recent one we held on the, the Shinnecock um, Reservation uh, with the Shinnecock uh, Nation Boys and Girls Club. Uh, we have a youth scholarship program that wasn't focused on mental health, I shouldn't, as far as I know, but it, it's, um, I'm just saying it, we were inclusive um, with, with youth and also with, with other things. So our medical transportation program, for example, um, uh, we have transported uh, people to and from doctor's appointments or, or um, health facilities. And uh, we've transported people who are not Latino. So people who find us who are not eligible for the town transportation, uh, which is for 65 and above and or disabled, something like that. So, so people find us and we're not gonna say no to people, of course not. Um, so it's quite possible that as Ola grows, um, um, we, will, we will have more clients who are, are not Latino, but just please know that you know, we are serving 
we are serving basically whoever whoever comes to us and 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 needs services. And that's just kind of an organic change. Then, exactly. Right? I mean, as, as as more and more people um, find and and focus in on the organization. Right. Right. And yeah. So. So we'll plan on seeing you back here in 2042, and we'll we'll talk about. Uh. <laughs> How old will I be? <laughs> right. So I think it's very fun that Joe, you're asking me, us or me and, and all of us at Ola to take time to think about the past. And Bill is asking us to think about the future. I'm like, well, when are we supposed to actually do our work if we're doing all this thinking about the past and the future? What about so, today? We can't do either of those things because today's agenda is so busy. Get out there and change the world, Sandra. <laughs> While I'm thinking about the future and the past, exactly. Yeah. But, but no, they, they are they are important questions and and to you know just ass assess where we are. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that we're feeling it. We certainly feel it every day, just kind of what we're doing and 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 such, but to um and sometimes you do see immediate impact for sure. When you're doing direct services and working with clients, clients, you you get those happy, happy stories and and people in tears at first because they're so desperate and then in tears because because they've come out on the other side and and we've been able to help them do that and that feels tremendous that's going to um, be so rewarding yeah yeah the the slower change is is the the systemic change and and you know we'll just keep plugging away keep it up Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sacharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.